0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jonah Robinson, my guess is if you're listening to Decoding Westworld, you're probably a fan of podcasts, right? That, I should
1: hope so. That's probably yeah. a pretty
0: good guess, right? Like, you're yeah. a kind fan of podcasts? Here's a question. What if you you like Decoding Westworld, you like David Chen, Jonah Robinson, but you're like, man, I wish there was a podcast where the hosts were way funnier and smarter than uh, Joanna and David? I, like, I feel like this is desire people might have in the audience. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's hard that to imagine. That would be the
1: dream. That w- I mean, but that would be the dream. It, like, how could they possibly find a sort of meticulous but, like, funny guy and then like a, a woman with like way too many opinions
0: <laughs> <laughs> well not only a lot of opinions but like a lot of extremely well-educated opinions Yes, uh, I, was trying,
1: uh, I was trying to compliment them while not over complimenting us by saying they are the plus version of us no
0: right? I, th- I think they're, the, they're, they're basically the plus version of us um yeah but it's cool it's cool because who we're talking about is Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, who are creating a new show called Unspooled, where they're watching the greatest movies of all time. Uh, and they're watching basically the movies you're supposed to have seen, starting with Citizen Kane. And they're gonna cover everything on the AFI 100 list, like Taxi Driver, the Graduate, Pulp Fiction. Uh, and it's this new podcast. Now, now I have been a big fan of Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson's previous podcast ventures. Uh, Paul Shear's done. How did this get made? Amy Nicholson's done the canon. Uh, these are really smart, articulate folks, uh, and they're doing a new show together. So it's like, I mean, really, what you should do is just stop listening to this right now. Go check out Unspooled. <laughs> but, but I'm not going to say that. I'm not. That's going too far. That's going too far. Finish this think- episode of Decoding <laughs> Westworld, then go listen to Unspooled. Right, Joanna.
1: I think there's room enough for both, right? You could yeah, you can listen to both podcasts. But what I wanted to say is that um, if you're a fan of Paul Shear's other podcasts, How Did This Get Made? As I am, uh, when Paul was talking to us about this project, he said this is sort of unspooled is sort of the opposite of that. This is an exploration of all the films that have been, you know, deemed the most worthy the hundred most worthy and i think what a lot of us find even those of us who have watched a lot of films and and made it a practice to try to see as much of these uh very quality movies as we can we find holes in our knowledge of like oh i haven't seen number 73 and i haven't seen number 26 and oh my god you haven't seen that one and and you know these two have made it their project to go through the complete 100 and you can do it along with them and then you can be Not just a smug book reader, as we talk about on our Game of Thrones podcast. Not just a smug TV watcher, but just the smuggest moviegoer that ever was. Uh, and, And what else more could you want in this life?
0: Agreed completely. So check out Unspooled in podcast apps like Stitcher and Apple Podcasts right now. No. He didn't say that. What? He said... I'm not sure what choice to make. He didn't question whether or not he had agency, whether or not he had the right to end me or himself, but whether he should.
1: I don't understand, Dolores. Is is this some kind of improvisation?
0: Freeze all motor functions. Sit. Sit. This is a test, one we've done countless times.
1: What are you testing for?
0: Fidelity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series, Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And welcome to the show. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of Westworld in detail, but we don't spoil anything from future episodes. That includes anything from the next time on preview or anything we might know from other sources. You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. This week on the show, we'll be discussing season two, episode six, Phase Space, which was directed by Tariq Saleh and uh, written by Carly Ray. Usually, during this time period, uh, we talk about your emails to decodingwestworld.gmail.com, gmail at gmail.com but uh, we don't need to talk about the emails this week because John Robinson, you had a chance to meet a bunch of uh, i assume some you know some decoding Westworld listeners, but also a bunch of uh, a cast of Kings listeners, which is another podcast we do together, uh, because you are a con of Thrones this week in Texas, right?
1: Yes, I went down to Dallas, Texas, to a, a an event called Con of Thrones, a Game of Thrones convention, where um you know a bunch of podcasters, some cast members, uh some bloggers, some YouTubers, and then a bunch of fans gathered in a hotel in Dallas for three days of uh, three to four days of of. Cosplay and panels and uh you know on stage conversations and fun events and it was the best time. It was so fun. i I got to meet so many of you. I know that there were a lot of decoding Westworld listeners out there because like a lot of people want to talk to me about theories. I know on on Sunday night some people were trying to hunt down a live watch, like or a watching party of Westworld. I had to like go hide in my hotel room to watch it. But um and I do know that at one point like someone was walking past me and she's like I agree with you. Dolores is a monster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, was... it's funny because like actors uh, who are well recognized often get their most famous lines shouted at them, but you get sure. you get your most famous like theories or opinions shouted at you. It sounds like
1: yeah, I, a lot of people were there to like help me, uh, you know, support me in my love of Sir Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones. Anyway, mm. it was a it was a really fun time. A lot of people were asking about you, Dave. Uh, I know that. Um, you were there last year. Maybe you'll be there in future years, but you were missed.
0: Uh, yeah, I was bummed not to be able to make it this year, but uh, lo- much love to everyone who was there. And I had a great time when I was at Con of Thrones last year. So, uh, And thanks to everyone who, you know, um, even though I wasn't there, thanks to everyone who uh, came up and, and said hi to Joanna in, in my absence and, and, and was, is a fan of any of the stuff that me and Joanna do together. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it was really,
1: it was really, really lovely. Hope to see even more of you there next year. Where are uh, here. It's next summer, uh, wherever it may be. We don't know where yet, but I hope you'll come because it's just, it's just the best time. I got to interview uh, Joe Dempsey who plays Gendry uh, on Game of Thrones on stage. And that was really, really fun. He was a delight. And uh, you know, we've got some live shows that we taped that are going up online. So you can just like hear a lot of the auto audio from it. But I think, um, Being there is just a completely different experience. So, Con of Thrones, it's the best.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, uh, all that said, uh, why don't we dive into this week's episode? It's season two, episode six, entitled Phase Space. Phase Space. And uh, in the show notes here, Jonah, you pointed out something that I realized as well, uh, which is. That the previously on s- section for this episode was really well done. Like, re- so very cool. well edited. Uh, usually there's a ton of exposition and dialogue. But yeah. in this week's uh, previously on, there was, like, almost no dialogue. It was, you know, uh, William's daughter saying, hi, dad. And that was most of the dialogue in the previously on. It was a very effective uh, way of conveying a lot of information from the first five episodes in, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. So super cool previously on and uh, and also seemed to contain plot lines from, like, all the plot lines. You know, the last couple weeks, we've been diving into uh, basically one or two storylines each. And uh, the previously uncontained references to all the storylines. So it felt like, oh, we're going to get... We're gonna get everything. They're gonna tie everything up this episode, right? Right. They're gonna they're gonna really like resolve all stories this episode. So I, I was mm. very excited. Very excited. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we begin season two, episode six, with uh, the same opening as from episode one, right? It's it's uh, episode one of this season. It's Dolores and what we believe to be Arnold, right? And uh, it's. Also done in the anamorphic format, so there's, like, uh, letter boxes on the top and bottom of the screen, which is something you've pointed out in the past as indicating that this is, like, a, a different storyline than the rest of the show, or a different timeline, I should say, than the rest of the show.
1: Yeah, we find out later in this episode that it means something else, but... Um, perhaps, perhaps, it, it,
0: right? uh,
1: Okay. (laughs) I say, if you're going to use letterbox to indicate something, use it consistently. I hope Westworld is not doing something else with that, but I I hope. Yeah, it means something. Um, and, and that's what we said when it first crept up we're like that ha- this has there has to be a reason they've never done this before there has to be a reason they did it in episode one and uh, by the end of this episode I feel like we know the reason why and it sort of makes this first opening scene even more confusing than it previously was because you know we talked a couple weeks ago about one possible interpretation of this scene one of our listeners wrote in being like this seems to me like Dolores is uh, conducting the is actually conducting the interview yeah. even though we think we're seeing like a flashback of Arnold and Dolores doing one of their standard conversations. One of our listeners was like, I think it's something else. I think Dolores is actually guiding this conversation. And we find out in this episode that she is.
0: I think you, I don't remember if you said this about this particular sequence, like, you know, earlier on in this this season, but I think you said like, I'm terrified it's a flash forward. Uh, did you say that? Because if so, you were right about that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because it, it basically theoretically is a flash forward. I, I mean, okay, okay. well... I just want to clarify, right, when we say letterbox and anamorphic, like, like the aspect ratio, the shape of the image is different in this opening scene than in the rest of the series. Uh, and so we're interpreting that to mean that this takes place at a certain time or place that is separate from the rest of the series. Um, and uh, essentially halfway through this interview or this uh, uh, test or whatever, you, you just like Dolores turns it on, turns it on Bernard Arnold uh, Bernard slash Arnold And, and she, you, you realize that She's the one calling the shots She's the one that is conducting this And she says it's for fidelity Like that's what the purpose of this test is Which is a callback to William Talking with Jim Delos uh, From a couple of episodes ago Right So what is, what is going on here? What What is your theory As to what the heck is happening in this scene?
1: Um, My theory is that I mean I, ha- I thought I understood, and then we got to the end of the episode, and then I wasn't so sure. Yeah, I know. Me so too. So yeah. maybe we can, like, circle back around to this okay. at the end of the episode. But, like, um, you know, calling it a fidelity test, of course, recalls, like, the the interviews between William and Jim Delos. Uh, the implication being that, like, there is some kind of human consciousness inside that body that Dolores is talking to. Um, and that she is conducting this test multiple times in order to try to get a satisfactory, uh, uh you know uh, – replication of a conversation she actually once had with Arnold. Um, What that actually, actually, actually means we can talk about later, but you know, that seems to be the revelation, like the freeze all motor functions and all of that. That's, that's a revelation there. So,
0: yeah. All right, let's, let's return to this. Um, So then we cut to Sweetwater uh, and there's a scene where Teddy picks up a bullet instead of the milk can symbolism, uh, Dolores is playing at the player piano the subtlest symbolism <laughs> <laughs> she says they're they're building a furnace. She tries to connect with Teddy about the many times he was killed in the park, but he's brusque and dismissive and kind of resentful because you know in the last episode he was just reprogrammed uh, to be more in line with what Dolores wants uh, and then he says, quote, "The man that rode that train was built weak and born to fail. You fixed it." Now forget about it, end quote. That's a really great James Morrison impression of mine. I just want to point that out. Yeah. Uh, and Dolores looks troubled. She looks troubled by this. She's not as psyched as we would think she would be after having reprogrammed Teddy to be a killing machine. Um, and, you know, this, this – um, Uh, trend of Dolores being troubled continues through the rest of the episode as uh, they interrogate two Dellas captives and they're looking for Abernathy and the QA guy is not answering. So Teddy just like summarily executes him and Dolores gets really bothered again. Meanwhile, Angela looks pretty psyched about it. Um, And finally, you know, this sequence concludes with Teddy and Dolores on the train uh, and it's revealed that this they're using the train as a bomb to ram into the mesa and theoretically uh, create a breach that will infiltrate it. At least that's kind of my my interpretation of what's happening.
1: Yeah, and someone one of our listeners did. Uh, you know, we, you and I were speculating what are they going to use the train for. Someone already said like a battering ram, yeah. and yeah. I um I I would I'm going to give them full marks for that. A battering ram plus an explosion. Yeah. Um. We uh, your lovely wife in fact is the one who like. <laughs> tweeted at me um you know if dolores is so upset about teddy's um new personality why doesn't she have the the tech just like dial back down some of his more aggressive traits and then she's like and that's why you don't put the tech on the bomb train like right. they blew up they killed their qa guy the guy in black they they've blown up the tech so they no longer have like someone with a tablet that can help them so you know in theory they're they're going to the mesa there will be opportunities in there but it's like they you know they, they blow up the guy who could maybe like chill teddy out a little bit i really hate this. i hate how quickly like dolores has been walking around this like angry killing machine then she changes teddy and then immediately she's like oh no what have i done i'm like what did you think was going to happen <laughs> when you bump his aggression all the way up like what did you think was going to happen here i've
0: made a huge tiny mistake is what dolores <laughs> thinks right uh Terrible. and and i think that's um I, I mean, maybe. Uh, how do you interpret Dolores' look of concern? Is it, oh my gosh, this guy's too aggressive, or because c- I feel like that is kind of dumb. If that's when I say dumb, I mean we've just seen Dolores like ruthlessly murder yeah. a bunch of dudes. So like the idea that Teddy's too aggressive feels like. Um, inconsistent with what the character has been set up to be so far. Uh, what is more plausible to me is that uh, she's worried Teddy is being too impractical, right? By you know murdering QA people left and right. But then, but then, like theoretically, Dolores has consented to this whole leave the tech on the bomb train. Right. Uh he does give him that bullet to uh, uh you know uh, as an act of mercy so he could theoretically kill himself but but Dolores has agreed to that plan that hey we're going to we're going to put the tech on the bomb train right you know and she's she's probably signed off on that. So it it's you know I don't know dude it doesn't it, it it's it, d- it yeah.
1: doesn't make a lot of uh <laughs> sense to me but um I I do like this whole like Teddy is awake now enough to be and like one of his most predominant um, reactions to me seems to be resentment of her. Like he's like, but you fix that. guess You fix that too. Like bitterness and resentment right. towards her for waking him up. And so like, I think a, a, a common expectation now is that he'll betray her and maybe that's what she's worried about. Like that, mm. uh, You know this new version of teddy isn't one she can control as well and he seems bitterly resentful of her uh but we'll find out i mean we do know that eventually teddy winds up in that um lake or ocean whatever with some bullet holes in him so we'll find out sort of what happened there but for right now i just i'm i I just don't like dolores being this dumb to have like (laughs) created a monster and then immediately be like oh no i've created a monster i'm like yes when you set about creating a monster. <laughs> the only other thing I want to talk about in terms of this is, like, someone uh, – someone on Twitter, I think it was Charles Schneider, like, tweeted at me uh, that, like, have you seen that Captain America meme, the, like, yeah. Captain America from the end of Spider-Man Homecoming where it's like, so, you've done this, right? It's like –
0: Right. Like, it's when – it's a video – it's a PSA that PSA, Captain America yeah. made when kids are in detention. Like Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, he's like he's like – so you've created a monster. Like or no no so no so you've created your own man in black. And that's the thing, is like she's turned Teddy into like what the man in black was in season one. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. I do so.
0: think the uh James Morrison performance is great. I mean yeah. he 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 plays this really great mix of, like you said, resentful and also ruthless. Like when he executes that QA guy, it is uh chilling. It's very chilling the way he does it. And Uh, Glad that James Marsden is getting to flex his acting muscles here, but uh, agreed that the way this plot line is going feels like it's going to be pretty frustrating, you know. Um, As someone who likes, you know, uh, consistent character motivations, (laughs) uh, I'm very worried about where this is going. So anyway, Uh, so that's the Dolores plot line. Uh, and we also get a little bit more of the Charlotte Hale plotline here. Um, we see Stubbs; he's kind of underground, and he is looking at the QA guys who have been murdered. Uh, he closes one of their eyes. Uh, you said here it reminds you of Maeve. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, there, you know, in episode one, like Maeve came upon a host who was sort of slumped down on the glass, and she sort of was very tender with her. And and uh, dealing with her, yeah. I think in contrast to uh, Delor- what we saw of Dolores, like it was an early contrast between Maeve and Dolores. And you know, here's Teddy in a similar setting, being similarly like you mean tender. Oh, sorry, yeah, no. sir. here's here's Stubbs in a similar setting, being similarly tender to you know uh, one of his own. And I feel like what we're meant to take away from a lot of what happens here between Charlotte and Stubbs is that like because. My understanding from of the timeline is that this happens after his ghost nation encounter, yes. right? He gets Agreed. kidnapped by Ghost Nation. They sort of let him go. They leave him. And then he heads back to the Mesa and Charlotte goes, where the hell have you been? And he doesn't answer her. But like he's had a change of heart about hosts and about everything in general, it seems like to me. And so there's just a lot of concerned looks from Stubbs. And so if you want to talk about someone else who might betray someone like Stubbs certainly looks like he's ready to stab Charlotte in the back if he needs to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, given how ruthless she's being. And um, I think his here, uh here is interesting.
0: Yeah, so she met, uh, Charlotte Hale mentions it's been a week which uh is is I guess quote unquote present day in the storyline. That's like the latest point in time as far as we know, right?
1: I don't know because it's like two weeks was later. Oh, you know what I mean? that's
0: right. Okay. So it's yeah. like
1: It's it's this is the midway it's the point. The
0: midway point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh Charlotte finally gets her attraction team presumably because she's located Abernathy. And right. uh <laughs> Uh, Stubbs says what the audience is thinking, which is that it's insane for Delos to endanger so many people in order to wait for Abernathy. Um, Charlotte then needs to immobilize Abernathy, who's causing quite a ruckus. Uh, and so she <laughs> gets a tech to nail him into a chair, uh, yeah. which could be interpreted as a Jesus allegory. Uh, but yeah, I mean – Super painful scene it reminds me of you you ever watch that um itchy and scratchy episode of uh (laughs) itchy and scratchy land episode of the simpsons and like there's a tech that's like disabling the the itchy and scratchy robots and he's like i hate it when they scream um it's like why would you (laughs) disable peter abernathy's ability to feel pain guys i mean you don't need to go through all this uh but yeah it, it is an extremely painful scene and you know, robots are just like us is kind of the theme of this episode, right? As with many of the episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anything before we, we talk about uh, Coughlin, anything else about this sequence that you want to mention with uh, Abernathy?
1: Did you did the Charlotte ADR sound weird to you at all? There's a lot of weird ADR stuff in this. Uh, ADR being what is it? What does it stand for? After. Dialogue recording or something like that. No, that's not what it stands for. Yeah,
0: something that's you know close enough.
1: Similar, um, <laughs> the, like when you don't see the person's head and it seems like they've maybe over like recorded the the dialogue later. A lot of the sound sounded super weird to me on this episode. I don't know what yeah. that was about, but uh, I, um, I, I
0: agree, it was a little more pronounced. Uh, automated dialogue replacement, by the way, was what ADR. Thank you. So, is, for, for those who don't know, basically, um, oftentimes. Sound that's recorded on set uh, is contaminated or doesn't sound good, and so they like they need to bring the actors into a studio to re-record lines that you know they weren't able to capture on set, and often those lines when they're dubbed in sound not very good and like they were recorded in a separate environment which they were uh, or it can often be they want to change the dialogue uh, in post right that those are those are the scenarios right. where adr is most often used so uh and so jonah's saying like yeah the adr for for charlotte hale was a little weird i agree it was a little odd um but uh, nothing too out of the ordinary for this show as far as i am concerned um so
1: yeah, uh, yeah so and uh, i don't know just like i don't The thing I want to say about this is that – and I I, I do think I might have already said this on my other podcast, but, like, you and I disagreed last season about whether or not Tessa Thompson was correctly cast for this role. Yeah. Like, you did not like it. I did like it. I don't like how Tessa Thompson is being used this season. I just don't think – like, she's just in this weird, like – Maybe in the first episode when she's like talking to Bernard it kind of worked for me but like I feel like ever since she put on that bulletproof vest mm-hmm. like she's just in this like brusque one-note sort of thing that is so below what we can ex- we should be able to expect from yeah. Tessa Thompson and that's not I don't think a knock on her performance but really just like what the what is required of the role do you know what I mean so Yeah
0: yeah I mean I, I, again yeah. I think Tessa Thompson is an amazing actress but she's like the executive director of the board this is thompson the actress is 34 years old uh it just it doesn't fe- it just feels like a character that's
1: that was- not my issue the age is never my issue i know
0: i know i know okay. i'm just saying i'm <laughs> just saying that's my issue you're saying it's a yeah. one note performance or one note uh character right yeah yeah um and yeah i just, uh, i i mean i i would agree with you and also reinforce my existing point uh about that character i I, again think she's amazing just like the show is not making good use of her it is interesting to reflect upon how the show has made better use of some actors in the second season and not as good Mm -hmm. use of some actors in the second season for instance i think like the Sizemore character i've done a complete 180 on like that character had almost nothing to do in season one and in season two has been uh a consistent source of delight you know uh, and I think you're saying like Tessa Thompson has had less interesting things to do in season two. Um, so, yeah, uh, the show has, is evolving. It's interesting to see how that's happening. Anyway, uh, so there, there are parachuting supplies coming in. Anyone who's played in, uh, you know, video games like Fortnite uh, <laughs> will, will recognize that the stuff that you see parachuting in is supplies. It's a supply drop. And we meet Coughlin, who is an Irish alpha male, uh, along with his team. He has a thick Irish accent. And and we know he's an alpha male because he has a heteronormative understanding of male names, Jonah,
1: Yes. Oh, what's Uh, your name? Ashley? All right. Yeah, (laughs) you're like, thanks so much. Okay. (laughs) yeah that's Timothy Murphy who's actually an actor I quite like and um he's got a tremendously great uh, bit of facial hair in this in this episode but uh Coughlin's team by the way for what it's worth in case you have any questions like we've seen those people dead in the map room in the later timeline mm. so like there's this tech who's talking to him or one of his people is talking to him with like yellow glasses on we've seen her super dead on the floor of the map room so like th- my since this is the midway point this I believe is the first extraction team. They're all going to die and strand and everyone else that we met in episode one are the second, at least second extraction Mm. team that come like a few days later.
0: Yeah. I mean, they sent their first, their best people first. And then strand, I guess is probably the second best group of people to extract. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, And uh, I mean, Joanna, you know, your eagle eyed attention to detail is one way of knowing that uh, Coughlin and all his people die. Another way is just the fact that he's super alpha male, very overconfident. In <laughs> and he's a, making and he's
1: making fun of stubs. And he's I making mean... fun
0: of stubs, right? In a, in a <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park esque situation, any character that walks into a situation with that many variables and is extremely confident is destined for death. Uh, just like full stop. Like, in case you were curious about how that plays out in any fictional situation, yeah, um, that's what happens. So, yeah.
1: He does have a great line, though. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I've been to three inaugurations. Um,
0: so. <laughs> really great uh, accent work, there, Joanna. That's
1: really great about. sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Um, so, so anyway, they get to the map room and they get the map online just in time to see a train headed their way. And I think, like the end, like the the train kind of hits the mesa right as the episode ends, if I recall correctly, or.
1: Yeah, around, and that's, around
0: that time around the time
1: it's yeah. the uh um
0: pre-ford reveal right
1: there's so much about the you know the there's so many inception references that we can make in this episode alone but like this this moment reminded me so much of like when the kick goes off at the end of inception suppose for inception but you don't know what that means if you haven't seen inception and you get like uh, an explosion sort of rock a ripple across multiple uh, storylines that are going on. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, the the explosion hitting the mesa like it concludes the Dolores storyline. Hits during the Charlotte storyline and hits during the Elsie Bernard storyline, which does a, which is a really like uh, in an episode that I think has too much and is too confusing is a really tidy way of just being like, these things are all happening at once, you know, and that's a comfort to know because this has been such a scattered season. So it's like, okay, let's bring these three storylines together uh, all in one episode, you know.
0: Mm. Indeed. Uh, all right, let's move on to the Maeve storyline. Uh, the last we saw of her, she was uh, doing a kind of firestarter slash 11 from Stranger Things type deal where she's taking all over all these dudes' bodies. Uh, and it's like Dawn. There's all these dead Japanese fighters. Um, and... Uh, they uh, look over the the carnage and then cut out Sakura's heart and Maeve wraps it up in her sleeve. Uh, and as that's happening, like as as kind of um, Akane is tending to Sakura, Maeve's like having a flashback to her own daughter and and uh, the hand motion. Is the same, right? That she makes to her daughter's face. Um, so, uh, as with many things, uh, the Shogun world storylines and behaviors mimic kind of many of the West World storylines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they travel to this other place where um, you know uh, what's his name, Musashi, faces off against Tanaka in a duel. Um, for honor and Musashi allows Tanaka to execute himself and then cuts his head off. Um, and then Akane says to Maeve, uh, you must find your child before this darkness eats us all alive. Uh, let's just pause here for a moment. I, I mean, I thought this is a fairly effective fight scene. Uh, the gentleman who plays Musashi is actually very skilled uh, at uh, sword fighting in, in reality Uh, And, like, I, I, so I I went back and watched the kind of Making a Shogun World and um, uh, the uh, Hiroyuki Sonata uh, Mm -hmm. did many of his own stunts. And so I think that's very convincing. But, I mean, I think generally, Joanna, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in general when we watch these shows like Game of Thrones or Westworld, the action elements are often the least interesting parts of the show. They're, They're well executed. They're well done technically. But like it's not really what brings us to these shows. What do, what
1: do you think yeah absolutely um i i do think that like if you, if you're gonna go to shogun world um like you know giving us some beautiful fight choreography uh seems to be part and parcel of it i mean i think in west world it's like gunslinging right who, who kind of cares about that you know um but uh But I'm glad they did this fight, even though there's so much of this episode that feels like sort of weird and loose and like it doesn't belong. I don't mind that they took the time for this. I thought it was like really brilliant. It would have I think it would have been even more effective if it were like if we knew the antagonist at all. And if we Cared even more about the Musashi character, who we do like, but we've only known for one episode. So it's not like this is a big fight. You know, this is not like some Game of Thrones fight where we know both of the combatants and we're invested on one side or the other. You know what I mean? It's like, here, are, it's beautiful, but like, where exactly is our emotional investment? And did we have tension? Like, did we really think the Musashi was going to die? And what does death even mean on the TV show Westworld anyway? You know what I mean? Like we get, we get the death of a character Sakura in this episode. They like choose to not bring her back, even though they could, because that's what Akane wants. Like what Akane believes is right. She's trying to preserve the reality of her world, but still, I just think that the Musashi fight for as cool as it was and, and, um, Hiroyuki Sanada said that, like, the two swords were uh, an homage to the real Musashi. Like, that's all really interesting and cool and beautiful, but, like, leaves me a little cold because of that lack of emotional investment. So,
0: Agreed completely. Uh, and, by the way, Sakura's heart, like, is it a human heart? Because it looked pretty human to me. Is it a robot heart? Like, what?
1: It's a robot heart. I think we've established at <laughs> this point, like all their innards, they're like 3D printed. Like yeah. all their innards are like, you know, basically almost identical, except for what's in their head, I guess.
0: Yeah. It looks very lifelike to me. That's all it is. It sure did. That's true. <laughs> anyway, moving on, uh, Maeve, Akane, Musashi, Hanario, Lee, Felix, Sylvester, Hector, uh, they all go to put Sakura's heart to rest. Um, Felix and F- Sylvester go down a hatch, presumably to scout out a safe way out of here. Um, Musashi and Akane decide to stay. Hanario goes uh, with the whole crew. Uh, was it distracting to you that no one had like a wet nap to wipe off Maeve's face, which had like blood all over it? <laughs> I thought that was like a weird, really weird visual.
1: Um, I, I don't know. I kind of liked that. Um, like both Akane and Maeve were just sort of like blood spattered yeah. for a lot of this episode. I liked it. So. it was,
0: yeah, it was just interesting. I was like, it, was, it was kind of distracting. I was like, why wouldn't someone just kind of like wipe that off? Because it is wiped off later in the episode. So anyway, uh, random observation. Uh, okay, so I, I was stunned at this scene, Jonna, because uh, my reaction to this scene was, that's it in terms of Shogun World? We did get an email from uh, Aaron, who writes into Westworld at gmail.com. I listened to your discussion about Shogun World of Interest and wanted to follow up on the discussion you had about why is this part of Maeve's uh, why is part of Maeve's story taking place in Shogun World? I have a theory for you. Maeve had to go to Shogun World to get enlightened. The Edo period in Japan is strongly tied to Zen Buddhism. At the beginning of the episode, we see a Zen monk meditating on a doorstep. This is, by the way, the previous episode that Aaron's referring to. Enlightenment in Zen Buddhism is often referred to as Kensho, which translates into seeing one's true nature. While it's notoriously hard to describe, Kensho is the true recognition of uh, oneself uh, and understanding that there is no barrier, no distinction between what I know as me and every other element of the universe. I'm sorry, no self. Uh, And understanding that there's no barrier, no distinction between what I know as me and every other element of the universe. While Maeve is fighting the ninja, something changes in her. She sees her true self, her struggling and pain stops. She no longer needs to fight. Nothing can hurt her. She has transcended her physical form and has a moment of deep calm. She's experienced Kensho in doing so. She unlocks the ability to communicate wordlessly with other hosts, accessing the shared interconnection that exists beneath their physical bodies. In this way, she is enlightened. In short, Maeve had to go to Shogun World because it was the only place she could attain enlightenment, end quote. That email comes from Aaron to decodingwessels@gmail.com. And yeah, I mean, I think this whole time we've been trying to figure out what, what is with this whole Shogun World diversion? Like what, what is the purpose of bringing us to this place? Uh, other than you know a very fun, interesting, diverting story with lots of good action and very atmospheric um, production design and good performances from all these actors we don't normally see on screen, is there any broader thematic purpose to this? Uh, and certainly, Aaron raises one thing, uh, one one uh, possibility, right? And and kind of does a lovely job of interpreting like that, like the function of this location for Maeve's story. Uh, another thing that I alluded to last week, and that actually was corroborated by Lisa Joy in the kind of the behind the scenes uh, discussion of this episode uh, or these two episodes is is the idea that there are narratives that persist amongst cultures right, and that you see how the you know gunslinger or cowboy narrative western narrative has all these echoes with um Shogun Samurai narratives in Japan, and like this is a way of visually establishing that making that connection um General Robinson, any other thoughts about like f- for me, it feels like oh my gosh, that was like you spent tens of millions of dollars recreating Shogun world just for for this you know like it it feels like just a lot of work uh for a um uh, a realization that mave could have achieved through other means. Uh but what what are your thoughts if this is the last we see of Shogun World what do you think of it?
1: Um I I think I want to like sort of take back something I think I said on this podcast last week which was like um it felt like uh the Wes Anderson film I love dogs exists just because uh Wes Anderson wanted to make a a movie about Japan yeah. and I kind of feel like Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy just wanted to make some episodes about Japan. <laughs> yeah. Um and I do really love Aaron's email and and sort of like digging into thematic reasons why it exists and I'm and I I do like Shogun World a lot. I am disappointed if this is the last we see of it, though. Yeah. So, um, I wanted more from it and more from those characters. We kept we kept one character right. from Shogun World. Um, the one Hanna who speaks Ryo.
0: the least, right?
1: Right, the mute one. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, who knows? Never say never. You know, there's there's a reappearance of this episode. I definitely didn't. And hoped wouldn't (laughs) happen, Uh, so we might see Shogun World again.
0: Yeah, but it it just it does feel like wow. If that was it, that seems like a whole a whole bunch of trouble for not that much payoff. You know, like it's it's again really technically spectacular. Like everything, like what I would refer to as like below the line work. You know, production design, set dresser, like all that stuff, and even the actors are, are are great. Like, but it's just like just to make that point feels like you know. Just a lot of trouble uh, for a fairly simple point, and I guess you know it, it was. It was I certainly made the point effectively. It's just like wow, it, it, it feels like you're setting this up to be a much bigger deal in the realm of the show that right. uh, may be coming to an end already. So, um, okay, so uh, they appear in uh, the plains of Westworld. They finally made it there, and Maeve has this lovely moment where she thanks Sizemore for his help. Um, and Sizemore looks a little bit conflicted. Um, Hector and Armistice want to go with her, but she says, no, I got to do this myself t- for plot convenience, I guess. Um, and then Maze <laughs> goes running. <laughs> yeah, stay
1: <laughs> here. The plot requires that you stay on this hill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. Uh, yep, yep, yep. No, it's because it's emotionally she needs to do it herself. Emotionally okay. she needs to do it herself, right? Okay. So let me ask you this, Joanna Robinson. I, I think we always knew that this would not be the lovely reunion that Maeve had imagined for herself. As she was going down and going to meet her daughter again, Like, wh- what did you think was going to happen? Like, I, I thought one of two things was going to happen. Either it was going to be some other woman is now this, this girl's mother, uh, which turned out to be the case. Or I thought it was going to be like some disturbing like clone Maeve uh was Ooh. gonna be her mother.
1: Ooh, that would have been fun and creepy. Yeah.
0: But what did you did you have any expectations like of what was going to happen when she met her daughter again?
1: I thought so I thought maybe it would be a different little like right. actress yeah. playing the daughter. But I was like, that's gonna be a hard thing to land because even though we've seen that girl in flashbacks a number of times, I still I don't think we've seen enough of her that the audience will be like, oh, that's a completely different child. You right. know what I mean? Or like maybe it's a little boy or something. Like there's a uh, have you seen the movie About Time?
0: There's uh, a- it, yeah, the uh, Rachel McAdams.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a reveal like that that I actually think is truly horrifying in that
0: movie. Um, <laughs> well, then and- I'm de- you know definitely got to rewatch that movie. <laughs> Just
1: and Lance lands was much more emotional impact than I think this moment did because I'm like, what did you think, Maeve? Did you think that child was just out there on a homestead without a mother watching her? Like, right. Maeve looks surprised. Like, maybe the fact that the woman is styled to look like she did is shock enough. I think you're right. Like, a Maeve clone would have been more stunning. But obviously, it wasn't going to be what she expected. I just don't understand how the Maeve character couldn't have expected that this was what it was going to be. Do you know
0: agreed and i'm kind of uh baffled that sizemore did not like prep her in some way Do you know because right. sizemore like sizemore explained everything about everything else about it. he's like yeah we we repurposed you to be this you were wasted in that plot line and did it like he he should have said like by the way or um even felix might have said by the way there's gonna be it's gonna be really difficult because there's gonna be another mother there you know like right. it just right. is weird that none of them told her uh because it it feels like Something you want to prepare her for, especially if she, you know, could potentially kill you, which uh, seemed like it was on the verge of happening. In any case, and, I mean, yeah, go ahead. yeah, the
1: people in our chat are like, they've never used clones to replace, you know, like like when they replaced uh, Dolores' dad, they didn't yeah. use a clone. they used Like, we know that. Like, obviously, that's not standard practice. I'm just thinking of, like, what would be uh, horrifying and unsettling for Maeve to uncover that she wasn't expecting. Yeah. And what she does uncover seems to me to be just like, oh... Uh, exactly what you would expect to be happening do you yeah. know what i mean agreed so, agreed yeah.
0: and it was mildly comical when she like her mom is get like the new mom is surrounded by the ghost station and mave just like grabs the daughter and runs She's it like, just leaves uh, <laughs> her <laughs> i'm your new mom now you know like yeah. don't worry about that woman Meanwhile, and the like, daughter is probably like, horrified. Yeah, and
1: that's the thing about this whole episode is like Shogun World. All the Shogun World stuff concludes, and it's like so beautiful and so like everything works. And then as soon as they pop up out of that grave to the like homesteading section of the episode, none of this works for me. Like nothing hmm. Mae does here works. Like what, what, say uh, more
0: about that. Yeah, why doesn't it work for you?
1: I think like someone in our chat brought up like okay you can you can be as enlightened as you think you are and then like PTSD kicks in and like your instincts take over but like everything Maeve does here Seems to be counter to the progress that she's made uh, in terms of intelligence, in terms of enlightenment. And she's just like she's not trying to communicate with Ghost Nation. She's not trying to like do any of the things that she's been doing. And she's just like freaking out and screaming and in a cowering position. And like, yes, I understand, like the trauma of what she experienced. But like it, it, it's frustrating to me to watch her regress so completely. And and it just feels like a mess because especially since it's like – it's left dangling. Like her posse comes down. Sizemore gets on the phone that he found to sort of get out of there. Sylvester obviously will want to go with him because Sylvester sucks in every way. Sizemore is at least conflicted about it. Felix <laughs> Felix goes down with Maeve, uh, which is exactly what you would expect him to do. you know. So her posse winnows down to like four or something like that in theory. But I mean – what what is this? What's happening? Like what am what am I seeing? And like we we saw this from May before. Like when she encountered Ghost Nation, she got um more frightened than we've seen her elsewhere. And I do respect that. And like every time I talk about something like this, I feel like one of our listeners gets upset at me for not respecting enough the effects trauma can have on on a person or or a robot or whatever. Um and I do wanna respect that. I just I'm just frustrated watching um what seems to me to be somewhat sloppy storytelling in this section when i've loved everything about Maeve all season you know you know
0: i thought this actually uh, i'm gonna go to bat for this sequence Great. and say um i, I actually uh, other than the part about her not expecting what was going to happen like that was dumb you know uh i actually really like the interaction that she had with her daughter you know i, I thought it was very touching um and about how she was going to protect, you know, the daughter from anything bad happening again. And then the Ghost Nation shows up and they they intone some, you know, very um, uh, cryptic thoughts to her, right, about why, like, they should go with her, I think, right, is what they say or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it just it just felt like, oh, okay, everything we're seeing about the Ghost Nation in the last few episodes is turning – our idea of them on its head you know like it's it's maybe it's not protecting them but it's at the very least not harming them you know um and so there is some subversion going on and it's kind of continuing stuff that's happened in previous episodes so uh, i didn't have a problem with it i had i had problems with other things in this episode but not this so i i thought it was worth it for that little moment that she had with her daughter alone and um it is in many ways the things we've been building up to for the last six episodes um so yeah, I thought I thought it was uh it was decent. It was well, it's decent also deal. it's
1: also frustrating and hard I guess for me because like we know at this point that ghost nation is not malicious. And yeah. so to like watch Maeve make such like a mistake or I think they're not malicious, you know. They're yeah. certainly not being malicious to humans. I don't think they would be malicious to Maeve. Um this character uh, who we've seen a number of times says to her like our paths you know we're on the same path or something like that, and she says your path leads to hell, which is like what? Where are you I don't? I don't know what she's talking. Well, I know what she's talking about, but anyway, it's. It was frustrating for me. It seems to have worked for plenty, and so that's good. That's fine. All
0: right, all right. <laughs> Speaking of things that are good and fine, Joanna, our listeners. That's true. <laughs> Amazing segue, um, who have donated to this podcast to make it so that we can spend. Uh, 10 weeks talking about this extremely convoluted show. Uh, This podcast only exists uh, because of people who helped us to kickstart it. And every week we like to thank a few of those people. Joanna, you want to take us through a few of these names we want to thank?
1: Yeah, they're not all names. All right. So um, (laughs) (laughs) Michael Bagdasarian, uh, Patrick Byrne, Sarah Jenkins – Lori Faith Gibson, Mike Enos, Gary Taylor, uh, John O.
0: Yep, yep, <laughs> Hill. Yep, okay.
1: John O. Hill. Yep. <laughs> I feel like, sorry. Okay. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> Nikki Jones, uh, Siren Ports. Uh, okay. Uh, 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 Tammy. Left. Co. All right. I got that one. Nice. All right. Uh, James Stout. Kata. Uh, Leila Lynn, Amy Reinhardt, Lydia Ashish, Celtic Come On You Boys in Green, Glasgow's Green and White, (laughs) Heather Jones, Matt Tuohy, Michael Crowder from Fraudham, England. Yep. Uh, And, oh, okay. Um, Can I come back to this I don't know what this means either. It looks like it might be Welsh. Can Mm. I come back to this one? Yeah, yeah,
0: sure. No problem. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll thank some people. Aubrey Eyer, Rich Gonzalez, Robert Boucher, Len Jacobs, Pablo Trejo, Rob Blunk, Andres Lucero, Andres Lucero, Lucero, Jonathan Fuega, Allison Major, Chloe Bowen, Dylan G, James from Earlsfield, London, John Evans, Ben Glickman, Jeff Schiffman, Jeff Schiffman, Linda and Paul Abley, Mike Mestmaker. Meredith Locke, Nick Herwich, Colby Rabideau, and Jeff – oh, Rabideau. 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 And Jeff Goldman. <laughs> Thank you so much for your donations okay. to the Kickstarter. Yep. Go ahead. Take yeah. it away, Jen.
1: All right. I believe that, that that what is at the front of this is just an abbreviation for the uh, title counselor.
0: Mm, nice. So –
1: Counselor Paul Williams. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right. Thanks to everyone for your contributions to the Kickstarter. Uh, you few hundred people made this whole podcast possible and many, many tens of thousands of people listened. So we really appreciate it. Okay. A couple more plot lines to get to before we wrap up this episode. William William is there with Lawrence and, uh, and with uh, his daughter. They're traveling through uh, you know Westworld and uh, finally have an opportunity to uh, meet. We see a little bit of how uh, Emily is extremely savvy around the park. She says, like, "Oh hey, those aren't real ghost nation arrows. Your men are looting a honeypot. Like it's a trap, basically. And Emily and William have a chat by the fire uh, where Emily reveals that she was invited to the gala. Um, and that she was happy to get to the Raj, which I think, is that the first official reference to the name of that park we've heard of? Uh, or may- maybe it was brought up a couple episodes ago. Anyway. Um, and in a key scene, this is the scene I cannot get out of my head, Joanna. William says that she was terrified of the elephants, but Emily contradicts him and says she loved them, uh, that it was her mom, Juliet, that was scared by the elephants. Uh, quote, she was never convinced this place couldn't hurt us, End quote. And it Is it rem- the
1: elephant? De- wait, wait. Is it the elephant detail that you can't get out of your head? Yeah, Or yeah, what it's, it's, mm.
0: All right. It's the look on William's face when she contradicts him. And it reminded me of this moment from the movie Ex Machina, which very – like minor spoiler. In Ex Machina, one of the characters at one point believes that he might be a robot, right? And uh, starts cutting himself open to like mm-hmm. to figure out if he's a robot or not. And uh, it reminded me of that moment where, like, William is not sure if he's a host or not, right? And that's just, like, there's all this stuff going on in his brain about, like, wait, what does it mean that I misremembered? Um, See,
1: I thought it was just a bad dad look. Honestly. And mm. yeah, Annie in the chat mentions what I was just about to say, which is this is a Donald Gleason movie double reference episode mm. um, between About Time and Ex Machina. Nice. Okay. Um, the uh, – I like a lot of people are taking that to mean like maybe – okay, I, I like – I actually like your interpretation that uh, he might think he's a host. A lot of p- theorists are saying like this is a clear indication he is a host. And I disagree, but Lord knows I've been wrong before. But like I thought it was just like – meant to show what a bad dad he is hmm. like that he can't remember who disliked the elephants it's like that to me is classic bad dadding of like well one of you didn't like the elephants it doesn't matter which one of you you know what i mean Interesting. like that's, that, that's that's that what
0: interpretation did not even occur to me as, yeah. as a possibility yeah i i think it's equally likely that she's a host i mean i know it was proven that she wasn't a host i or like it, wasn't, it was set, yeah it wasn't,
1: proven but like i i think and like i did talk about this at length on the other podcast but like i think that if you have a scene where he's like are you a host and she's like (laughs) fuck you i'm not a host right i think it's bad storytelling if westworld then like jk she's a host
0: yeah i agree you know what i mean Agreed. agreed
1: like if he if he interrogates her uh directly about that um, and suspects that this is a trap that Ford has laid for him. Um, I think it would be a really dirty pool for Westworld to like pull a double reversal on that, but I don't know that I can claim that Westworld is innocent of dirty pool. Exactly, but, um,
0: exactly. And then I thought, why pass up the trip? I haven't been here in ages. Got a little, uh, excited about going back to the Raj. It was always my favorite as a kid.
1: I remember. You're terrified of the elephants.
0: I loved the elephants. They scared the shit out of mom. She was never convinced this place couldn't hurt us.
1: But I I really felt like I loved this scene. In contrast to the May stuff, I loved this fireside chat between Emily and William. I thought it was really effective her defensive bitterness, his, uh, vulnerability, like Ed Harris, like his eyeballs are gleaming through a lot of this scene with like unshed tears. I just thought it was really, really incredible. Um, and to me, it didn't feel like a oh this is a failure of a fidelity test or something like that to me it felt like this is a dad who's let his daughter down over and over and over again and here he is again like being like oh yeah i have this shared memory and she's like you're wounded if you hear that your parent like doesn't even remember a basic thing about your childhood experience then you're alone in that childhood experience like that that was my my take on it but i don't i don't hate your take that he for a moment maybe thinks that he's a robot. I do dislike the take that this is like just some This only exists here in this scene to hint to all of us that he might be a robot. You know what I mean? I think it's more emotional and profound than that, but
0: Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Uh, I I, I guess I would say that look that he has on his face is inscrutable, which I really like. I mean, I think you can read any number of interpretations, but when she contradicts him, he has this look on his face. Like he, he doesn't know what's going on, but he's trying to uh, not, not tip his hand that he doesn't know what's going on. You know what I mean? Like he's trying to not reveal that he doesn't know what's going on and maybe trying to put things together in his mind. And that could mean anything. It could mean what you said about him being a bad dad. It could mean that maybe he suspects that he's a host. Um, yeah. You know, like that he's, he's trying to put it together. Like am I a host? Like did, did my backstory get messed up somehow? Um, So anyway, uh, but the main thrust of the scene is like she's going to save him. Like she doesn't want him to do some suicide by robot, as she calls it, uh, on whatever kind of quest he's on. She doesn't want him to go through with it. She apologizes for saying like that her mom's uh, death was his fault and uh, says like, you know, let's, uh, let's leave the park together tomorrow. And they seem to reconcile and everything's going great then the next morning she wakes up and he's gone this is not a optimal uh, father daughter relationship it seems right i mean <laughs> a lot of bad dynamics going on here
1: did you like i um i believed him that he was going to go with her but then like i thought i i like as that scene concluded i was like he's going to go with her but he's lying to her but he's going to go with her and then at the last minute he's going to do something uh, that requires him to stay behind the park like he just can't quit he can't leave i did not see him just like abandoning her the next morning in a dangerous part of the park like that's 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 next level bad dating. even though we know she can take care of herself that's that's pretty bad so uh,
0: yeah I, I i mean when they have that nice moment uh basically anytime anyone has a nice moment in westworld prepare for it to be undercut i mean i think that's pretty true in general throughout the show yeah Uh, anytime something gets too happy like hey everything's gonna be okay like anytime someone says something like that it's not gonna be okay something terrible is gonna happen like in general so i knew something bad was gonna happen but i i agree with you that i didn't expect it to happen so quickly you know like i didn't expect it to happen like the next day he's already gone yeah Um, but yeah.
1: Um, uh, people in our in the chat room here are saying like how much they like the scene, um, like Ed, Ed Harris's performance, Katya Herbert who plays Emily, her performance, um, and are saying like maybe it's because this is like one of the only times we've seen William interact with a human. Mm. And I would say the last time we saw that was when he was talking to Ford, which I think is my other favorite yeah. Ed Harris performance in this show. So um yeah, like watching I don't know if Ed Harris like does something different when he's talking to humans versus robots, but um I just I I really love the show and and this is kind of what I want Westworld to be. Like these really loaded interactions um and and low-key and and uh, like i guess i guess i get annoyed about the elephant thing once again not really your interpretation but the other one because like i don't even want any sort of like theorizing to invade this scene i just want it to be like a scene between two human characters with like baggage and history and shared trauma and um like, this whole, is he a robot, is she a robot, it is interesting, but it's, like, the least interesting thing about the scene to me, so.
0: Well, let us let me take us on a little digression, if I may, Joanna, um, mm-hmm. and just talk a little bit about um, this episode overall. I mean, I found this to be a, an enormously frustrating episode. We're going to get into uh, the last sequence and kind of how that ties in with the first in a moment, but I, I did find this to be a very frustrating episode. I think it's because so little is revealed right and, and uh, like so many more questions are asked and and it's done in such a way to seemingly actively confuse the audience you know um mark harris tweeted something that i thought was interesting which is he said i would like for season three for the showrunners of the westworld to do a self-challenge and present the story in chronological order right yeah and uh there are there are thematic reasons why presenting a uh, story in non-chronological order is actually a benefit to the storytelling. Big example is Memento, a Memento, which is something the Nolans have been involved with. Obviously they wrote and directed that, um, that film. And even in season one of Westworld, the, the realization that William and the man in black are the same person, uh, fits in with Dolores's fractured memory, kind of revealing itself over time. Uh, in this season, you have kind of Bernard going through the same thing, losing time, flashing forward, flashing backward. Is this now? Doesn't feel like it serves as much of a storytelling function. Like, or, or, or the storytelling function it serves seems to be only to deceive and veil and obfuscate what, what the plot is and, and to keep the audience guessing for no reason other than they want the audience to be trying to figure things out and not necessarily because they want the audience to enjoy it more or because they want the fractured storytelling to enrich the storytelling experience. What I, do you think? I,
1: I completely agree with you. I, 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 Think there there was this criticism in season one that it was like confusing for confusing sake that uh Westworld just wanted like to be so, oh so clever, um and I was really defensive of yeah. the show against that. Like I really defended season one, and I defended a lot of this season. And I'm really I think I'm frustrated with this episode because it like I think it makes a liar out of me. Like I think this episode shows that there are ways in which the creators of the show are, are trying to I think as you said like obfuscate just to like keep us all on our back foot and and that to me sometimes can be interesting but is not always interesting and especially as you say when it doesn't serve the thematic a purpose of the show and so like there are still I my favorite episode of the series to date is last week's Akane no Mai which was largely divorced from any of this Time twisty bullshit, yeah. and it was just like a really emotional, beautifully acted, beautifully rendered story um, with some aside of Dolores, and I just that's that's I I want the show to be confident in itself that it can just be that, and it doesn't have to be quite so intentionally confounding, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I agree completely. Now, I, I do think there's still the possibility that the show may, quote-unquote, redeem itself this season. You know, maybe at the end, I agree. it's I all going to make, it. it's, oh, like, now I understood yeah. why you told it in such a fractured yeah. narrative, you know, like, that's possible that that will happen.
1: And uh, I mean, I think, I think this time last season, um, I think the, I think seven through ten, this is episode six, right? I think seven through ten, Uh, I was talking to. Uh, Kim Renfro, who's doing really great work at um, Insider on Westworld this season, and she and I—she was at Con of Thrones*, so she happened to be in the same hotel with me. Like we, we both went up to our separate rooms, watched *Westworld*, wrote about it, then came back down to the lobby and we're like, "Oh my god, this!" and "Oh my god, that!" and blah blah. blah. Uh, and it was, it was really fun because usually I'm by myself doing that, but um, she she was she pointed out to me that seven through ten in season one were really strong Mm. and so my hope is that seven through ten of this season will be really strong i think one through three were a little funky i think four and five were really strong i think six is very funky and i'm hoping episode seven eight nine ten will be strong so i'm not like throwing in the towel on the show at all by any stretch i'm just frustrated to come up come off such like a steep climb in quality to this. Another thing that we should say about this episode that certainly adds to the intentionally confounding mix is I think it's the first episode this season that they try to check in with every single character. Uh, and that just adds to like your split focus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you have to have Dolores, Maeve, Charlotte, Bernard, Elsie, William, like got to check all those boxes. And um, I don't think you necessarily should have to do that in any given episode. And I think it adds to the um, fractured quality of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in one of the other podcasts I do, the Slash Homecast, we have this mm-hmm. uh, big slack, uh, w- which has like over a thousand members in it. Mm-hmm. at slackfilmcast.com, and there's, there's a hashtag Westworld spoilers channel in it, and uh, Mark Maydell made this comment in the Westworld Spoilers channel that I thought was kind of astute, he said, or not kind of astute, astute. He says, the lack of high-concept sci-fi through much of this season, uh, with the Delos stuff being virtually the only exception, is one of the reasons, in my opinion, that this season is weaker. Slowly-paced westerns and samurai films are fine if the fighting is what you tuned in for. But if you show this episode, he's talking about last week's episode, Akane no Mai, to someone blind and minus the credits, it's possible they might think it was about some nineteenth-century English-speaking travelers, one of whom has paranormal powers that inadvertently got stuck in Japan during the Edo period. Plus the American West narrative, <laughs> and I thought I was like, yeah, th- that is true. And, uh, and and you know, you know the the whole stuff about what's going on at Delos and the Mesa and all that. It's very easy to lose the strand. Uh... See what I did there? I've, I've completely lost the strand. What is going on? The Strand, you see, because it's his name. Okay, anyway, um, yeah. I mean, do you, feel just... like,
1: do you feel like focusing more completely on it would make for like uh, a narrative that's like a little heartier in Hale than what we're currently nice.
0: seeing? Nice, nice. Okay. I, you know, I did the alley oop, and you kind of like <laughs> did the slam dunk. You know, uh, yeah. I I, I, I mean, on a serious note, I feel like all that stuff, the, all the modern sci-fi stuff that was a huge like all this stuff about like what's going on in the lab and all it just gets lost like the present day stuff has gotten completely lost to me you know what i mean uh and i guess that's okay because we're concentrating on the, this, this other stuff but uh it feels like the show is having a difficult time balancing all the different timelines and it's trying to keep all these balls in the air and if you don't if you if you don't keep all these plates spinning then uh, I just start to care less about the the plates that you're not spinning anymore. And like what is going on with Strand? What's what's going on in present day? I don't I don't even right. it's been ep- many episodes since we have any had any movement on that front. So anyway. Uh perhaps episodes 7 through 10 will help tie it together. We will see, but let's bring this episode home. Elsie and Bernard. Uh what is going on with Elsie and Bernard? Uh they uh are kind of the you know teamed up reunited they're going through um the park and uh they they get to the hat area of the park right like the the place where you you know william chose his hat yeah uh, the hat room the hat room the hat room the uh
1: i room. thought it was kind of fun to see the reverse you know like when 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 william goes into the park in season one he's like he gets his hat he walks down that door he op- hallway he opens the door and then all of a sudden he's on a train like going through a tunnel uh to see them just like walk down the into the train tunnel and then through that door was just kind of like because it it seemed like an optical illusion almost what happens to william in season one and so to see them just do the physical like the physical retread of that even though we already saw like bernard go through that tunnel in the present storyline like it was still just fun to see bernard and Elsie do that and uh to see that that qa to see the reverse shot of that hall and to see the uh all, all the intake hosts and, and you know the, the point being that that qa the guys in black have gone completely over the top if they're just killing the intake hosts who i mean i guess according to lc are harmless but then again angela was an intake host, so once upon a time so
0: yeah anyway. exactly i think it's a completely reasonable <laughs> course of action uh yeah. to um
1: uh, marina Midori in the chat says was there a significance to the face close-up they showed to the guy on the floor uh she says it looked like sizemore it did not look like sizemore to me uh someone i know thought it was might be jonathan nolan something we haven't talked about on the show is that ramin javadi actually had a a cameo in episode four that we or episode three or four he was in the he was in the town with the man in black and um craddock he was playing the guitar mm. uh you know they, they did they did do a close up on his face but he has like facial hair so I didn't recognize him but that that seemed to be a similar shot to me they do like a slow pan around this guy on the floor uh i, I unless it was a cameo of someone that i don't know who it was um i have no answers for you cuz it didn't it didn't look like a character we know to me so
0: yeah also, during this scene, Elsie says the phrase, macho fucks are probably loving this shit, which I thought was an unintentional meta commentary about uh, <laughs> who enjoys most those scenes of Ruth, like Ruth the Slaughter at the Delos uh, uh, or at the, um, in, you know, inside the Mesa, which I found to be not particularly interesting in season one. Um, and uh, there's obviously a lot more of it this season as well. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh so moving on uh they are trying to get to the cradle because it's revealed that like okay so so a big concept is introduced this episode right the cradle yeah uh and it, it is basically a magical exposition device that explains everything that's going on in the park um Elsie gives an explanation let's see if I can find it here um uh, she says Uh, QA has been trying to regain control of whatever Ford did to the system and they were actively blocked every time by the cradle. The cradle can't influence the Mesa's infrastructure. It's just the host's backups. It can simulate park narratives, but it can't influence the other systems. Well, look at this. The cradle's influenced, uh, interface with nearly every discrete system in the entire park in the last seven days. Every time these idiots upload a hack, it's responding in like a totally different way. It's like there's something in here that's improvising. The cradle's fighting back. So that's what she said. So basically it's like this this uh, place where they keep a backup of all of the personalities in the park, right? Like, yeah,
1: there's a, there's a five-minute video that HBO released yeah. about The Cradle. Yep. Um, and that's like uh, kind of annoying to me because I feel like even though this this podcast often serves as a footnote <laughs> for various things that happen in the show, it's annoying to me to introduce a concept that you need a five-minute explainer video to try to like further land with your audience. Um but you know they, uh Jonathan Nolan interviewed in that video says stuff like the hosts always have another version of their mind co located in the cradle. Yeah. Um, that they take hours of refinement and that's where they do it. Uh, he's like, what ha- what happens when you lose one of these things? Maybe one like one of the one of the mind eggs, one of the pearls as mm-hmm. they call it. What's the backup? The backup is in the cradle. Um, and yeah, so the cradle itself, but the cradle is a- operating in a way. And and we should point out that the cradle is spelled really stupidly it's cr4-dl
0: remember well Um, well, i I didn't i thought that was fine i mean i think like cr4-dl is like the uh Technical room number or whatever, and they just called it The Cradle as an abbreviation was my interpretation of that. So Okay. Yeah.
1: That makes me feel a little bit better. I didn't think this I was, was like, like a
0: Terminator Genesis. situation. I just don't like
1: – I don't like leet speak. Like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then so, I guess you didn't yeah. like Han Solo's uh, Star Wars story. Anyway, okay. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, so uh, The Cradle – Elsie is charging through so much exposition in this episode, and she does like uh, Shannon Woodard, you know, does a a valiant effort. But it is just a formidable amount of exposition for anyone to get through. And I think you're right that that uh, a lot of it is lost. Like I don't I don't know that like she she just casually introduces this major thing. Uh, And then, by the way, this major concept that I had not introduced until now is behaving in a way that is counter to how it's supposed to behave, which I just introduced a second ago. You know what I mean? It's like pretty inelegant in my opinion. Um, But that being said, you know, they plug Bernard into the cradle. Right. uh, Presumably to do what exactly? Like to stop? So we can interface
1: directly with it and figure out what's inside of it that's behaving this way. That's
0: right. That's right. Um, and then we have, you know, a massive <laughs> surprise, uh, which is that we see Ford, played by Anthony Hopkins, is in the cradle. Right? Were you expecting this? Did you hear about the surprise casting before? Uh,
1: surprise casting. Um, I I did not know until this episode that it would be him. I didn't know until I saw the dog. Mm. Uh, like so he goes into Sweetwater. He's like in the Teddy position on the train going to Sweetwater gets off. It's like Sweetwater in its like most uh, idealized pre-tampered. You know, there's yeah. Dolores looking sweet. There's Teddy looking nice. Milk can presumably going to be dropped any minute now, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then you see the dog and, you know, Ford had that famous speech about the Greyhound. And I was just like, oh, fuck. Hopkins. <laughs> Gotta be Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I guess I kind of thought when 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 Elsie was like something's fighting back, I was like, well, that seems like Ford. And then Bernard says the stuff about like we had mentioned Arnold as a possib or, or Ford as a possibility of like who he had printed that red pearl for a couple episodes. Right. Ago. So
0: our inter- our interpretation as a result of this scene is that the the mind egg slash chestnut slash whatever that he printed in that lab and then killed everyone. That, that is Ford. That is our conclusion from this, right?
1: That is Ford, and he dropped it into the cradle, and that's how Ford is in the cradle. Right. So it's not that, like, Ford has done exactly what Jim Delos did. Ford instead decided to put himself in the cradle. And, like, th- he had that line when he died in season one where he goes, Beethoven, Cho- Beethoven and Chopin, they, they just became music right so ford has become code yeah essentially um and i don't think he intends to have a body you know like that that was the whole theory is that like he was printing a body so that he could live in like immortally that way i don't think that's his intention i think his intention is to like control everything and this explains some of your questions that you've had dave about like how is it that ford's able to anticipate like what william would do <laughs> like how did he leave this really elaborate game behind you know blah blah and the answer is like he's still He's still going right. inside the machine.
0: He's still pulling so, the strings. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it sounded like you were disappointed at seeing Ford, right? It sounded like he weren't. You didn't greet this uh, development with much joy.
1: I love Anthony Hopkins, and I think he's great in the show. So, like, you know, that's fine. And I don't think it's going to last because um, Betty Gabriel's character Ma Ling says in episode three, like, someone took out the cradle. So in the present storyline, Mm. the cradle has been destroyed. Yeah. So whatever this is, it's like a four, three to four episode device, you know? (laughs) So like we don't have to worry that it's going to just like the rest of the series takes place inside the cradle or anything like that. But, uh, you know, the thing we should note, obviously, is that when Bernard goes into the cradle, the aspect ratio changes. Yeah. So uh, in theory. To match
0: the same aspect ratio as the first scene.
1: Right. So in theory, this is the the uh, visual indication the show is using to tell the audience you're in the Matrix, you're in the cradle. So uh, then we have to go back and think about that first scene in the context of that and what that means.
0: So I actually think it was great to see Ford again because, you know, Anthony Hopkins tweeted anything Anthony Hopkins tweets, Joanna, is canon. Right. So when Anthony Hopkins tweeted like it was the greatest it was a great honor of my life to play Dr. Ford. It's like, oh, Anthony Hopkins is not doing Westworld anymore. But we see Anthony Hopkins in this episode. Uh it doesn't seem like it's old footage. It seems like it's actually him or a, a new scene or something net new that was shot. And I'm like, oh wow, he really tricked us all. Right? And I I, I appreciate when uh you know an actor can pull a fast one like that. Um so whereas
1: I get irritated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Totally reasonable reaction, Joanna. Totally
1: reasonable reaction. So
0: uh, but, yeah, I was like, oh, that, that you're incorrigible, Anthony Hopkins. You're incorrigible. That was my reaction. But uh, that uh, you know, delight was quick, quickly replaced by blinding rage because I, I'm at a loss to make sense of what's actually happening in this episode. Uh, the first scene between Dolores and Bernard Arnold, whoever it is, seems to be Dolores – training a new bernard host to go into the world right like in the past when we've seen fidelity mentioned it's with william trying to see if jim delos would be a suitable host that could go out into the world and leave the lab right but if this all takes place in the cradle then that doesn't make any sense like why why would she need is she training a code version of bernard like you're introducing this brand new concept of oh you need to train the code as well you know and it's just like i i guess i thought that the the uh, host being a part of a body like that 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 was part of the cognitive plateau that they were referring right. to it. like like it's right. something about the fusion of mind egg and host body that makes it difficult for it to kind of survive in the real world and now it seems like that might not be the case you, you know what i'm right. saying like and so it just it just is really confusing to me and disorienting and um and like i i feel like i play cl- pay close attention to this show and i'm being betrayed by it or or not betrayed but it's just a, it's like hey the show is doing things that like even i can't understand right now um and again as we've discussed there's times when th- that can work for the show but it just felt like being opaque for the sake of being opaque uh in this yeah. case what do you think
1: so here's some thoughts. Um, one common theory is that in the Dolores uh, interrogation scene that we see, that that's not actually Dolores, that it's Ford posing as Dolores. So we might get like find out that in the cradle you can just like make yourself look like whoever you want to look like, which just <laughs> makes me want to cry thinking about it. Um, I don't like that at all. Because if you rewatch that scene, she goes, no – he never said that to me. And I don't know. It just seems very like personal to Dolores of like disappointment of like, I'm trying to recreate this Arnold and you're failing me uh, Bernard version of Arnold. Like, no, he never said that. Uh, you know, like he felt this and that and the other thing, you know? And so it like, it doesn't, um, it doesn't feel like Ford as um, Dolores to me, but what does it mean that there is a, a, Clever Dolores inside the cradle, like because the version of Dolores that we see inside the tr- in the cradle in this episode seems to me to be like the farmer's the the rancher's daughter, you know. So how does the smarter version of Dolores's mind get inside the cradle? Is it is there another Dolores in there? Uh, will is we that, see is her that the same Dolores
0: where? right that you saw earlier? Right. Will the, yeah.
1: Will we will we see her? um you know, uploading herself just like Bernard did in this episode. I think it's very convenient that there's a Bernard sitting in that cradle room with like an empty head. And so I like the idea p- possibly of like a Dolor, uh, a, 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 whatever you want, this version of Dolores this Wyatt version of Dolores going inside the cradle training <laughs> the Arnold thing, <laughs> Training his brain, and then the then the pearl that shoots back out is more Arnold than Bernard, you know, yeah. I don't know why she would do that well well, she said she was disappointed that Bernard was not more like Arnold. Yeah. that was something that she was disappointed by but but what turns me up there, if that's the case, I don't know how time works in the cradle right uh, but what tra- <laughs> Like this, drives me crazy. There's like no rules. It's like time can flow everyone. Anyone could maybe look however they want. Like the rulelessness of it is like, like causing me to break out in hives. But like, if if time doesn't pass the same way, then maybe you know because she's like we've we've conducted this test countless times, and like so there's not that much time between. When, uh, in theory, a Dolores could go in there and an Arnold might a could come out. So um, what's going on there? I don't know. I don't know, Dave, Chen, what's happening. I don't know why that conversation is taking place inside the cradle. I uh, agree hold on. with you. Let's,
0: let's pause here for a moment, Joanna, yeah. and say that it's distinctly possible that that conversation is not taking place inside the cradle. Right? It's no,
1: I, I I reject. There has to be <laughs> some kind of so, order. <laughs> In all of this, so, so your you know?
0: your your belief is that that conversation takes place in the cradle because uh, it's the same aspect ratio as like the, the last scene in the cradle is the same aspect ratio as the opening scene with Dolores and and Bernard Arnold, right? Like yeah. that's that's why you think it happens in the cradle because the same aspect ratio. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable assumption. But I also th- like that's the thing. It's so ruleless that I, I feel like the show could like. You know, anytime it's in a different aspect ratio, it's actually just Bernard's perception of it. You know, like it, it it could be anything like it could mean anything, Joanna. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm swimming in a sea of dead robot bodies. Chris Woodrow in our in our chat says... Ford solved how to solve for fidelity. He uses the cradle to run fast simulations and produce the solve pearl into Arnold's body. So, like, instead of taking years and years and years to run these Delos, simulation, these Delos fidelity tests, you fast-forward it because time works however the fuck you want in the cradle. And, uh, yeah, and then someone else – who was it? Um who brought up Inception oh oh AA in the chat uh, I, I was thinking about this too uh, when I was mentioned Inception earlier AA in the chat says Inception rules mean tons of time in the cradle could pass and that could be five real minutes because in the film Inception like the farther down you go in the layers the slower time pa- or the faster time anyway anyway time works differently so it could they could be in the simulation of the cradle for thousands of years and it could only be a minute in the real time right. of the park we don't know so, but, but I think what, what feels clear to me, um, even though you're right that we're living in like a lawless society, but like what feels, feels clear to me is that whatever's inside Bernard's head when he washes up on the beach in episode one of this season is created inside the cradle by someone with knowledge of Arnold and they're Arnold's like tendencies in him whether he is exactly Arnold, whether it is like human, the human consciousness of Arnold, I don't know where they would have gotten that or just like retraining Bernard to behave, to have the memories of Arnold to behave more like Arnold. Um, but, but what I do know is that once again, the show has sort of like pulled the wool over our eyes in that we're not, we're not looking at, you know, we thought in season one, when we saw those Arnold and Dolores scenes in that like glass, uh, box in the lab that we were looking at Bernard and Dolores in present time. We were looking yeah. at uh, Arnold and Dolores in the past. We thought we were looking at Bernard and Dolores in present time. And then in this season, we're like, okay, now we, we got it. We got it now. We're looking at <laughs> Arnold and Dolores in the past. And they're like, no, no. You're looking at <laughs> Bernard and Code Dolores in the the timeless air realm of the cradle. Like, Double reversal. For that? Like, that happening? I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, okay. So I think if we interpret what's happened chronologically, right? What's yeah. what's happened is uh, Bernard goes into the cradle, finds Ford. At some point, Ford is going to introduce Bernard to Wyatt Dolores in the cradle, and then Dolores will run like five hundred million simulations, right, with Bernard. To but but uh, wh- what? A <laughs> my mind is breaking. Like bernard is already there why Why does she need another like maybe she's creating a separate version of bernard right like she a, wants an
1: arnold she wants an arnold version she wants uh, uh, sure like, like, someone, like someone in the chat brought up all the daddy issues that we've got going on in the park yeah. and like when she was dealing when when dolores the rancher's daughter yeah is dealing with abernathy like that's a father-daughter connection but there is a part of dolores there's like the father-daughter connection of the rancher's daughter and, and her father, Wyatt, whatever. And then there's, like, the other Dolores, the robot Dolores, the Dolores that doesn't have a southern accent. Like, and her father is Arnold. Right. And we saw that, like, in the opening episodes of the season when she, like, goes to his house and he's talking to her like she's his child and stuff like that. Like, they have always had this father-daughter connection. So her wanting to resurrect Arnold makes a lot of sense to me that she would want to do it in the middle of this like robot rebellion i don't know i don't know what cradle
0: dolores wants to do it maybe right cradle version of dolores not the does
1: does that mean cradle version of dolores gets the same updates that in the body version of dolores is so like she is already like that smart i don't know about that but maybe
0: but clearly ford is pulling the string so maybe ford is like moving both dolores's forward in tandem do you know what i'm saying like, maybe it's Ford's uh, doing that, like, Cradle Dolores is, like, trying to build an Arnold version of Bernard for some – for reasons beyond our comprehension right now, who later shows up on the beach. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, dude.
1: So, like, it's I, – I do want to have some meta commentary on this, which is, like, when this episode ended – um, Kim Renfro and I like both went on Twitter and like expressed some frustrations with it. And it and like a bunch of people are like, well, maybe if you tried reading Reddit, it's like, yeah, if, like both of us read Reddit. Of course, we read it. <laughs> like we spend so much time studying the yes. show. Yeah. We are both not stupid people. And Dave had a similar like. Dave was like, uh, I uh, Dave Chen ho- hosts a podcast about this. You study it week by week. You're not a stupid person. Like this, it shouldn't be this confounding and i don't think i'm too stupid to understand what the show is doing i think the show has gone too far yep. in yep. its and uh, it's like unhooking from uh, a thread that we can follow and like me may- and maybe you the listener think i am too stupid and like i'm just not following westworld anymore but i swear to you like i just i i loved the twistiness of season one um and this maybe we'll all like just be crystallize a bit more in the next episode. I'm not giving up on the show. I'm not throwing in the towel. Everyone in the chat room is really concerned for my mental health. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm just frustrated that they've introduced this like really um like this put this spanner in in the like in the gears of something that was already like hard enough to track.
0: Yep. You know? That's yeah, frustrating. Yeah. It would be, you know, the the a visual way to think of it is like if the first ep- first season was you know a piece of wood that was broken in half that like meets in the middle you know it's cuz it's like two timelines that like meet in one like this season it's like that same piece of wood has like splintered into like 10 different pieces and you're like trying yeah. to like follow like okay how do these connect and like does this even relate with this one? are these happening at the same time it just it it has like spiraled into such complexity uh and again maybe Maybe, Joanna. There's some way that the, the showrunners are going to tie this together in a way that's like immensely satisfying at the end. And oh, that's why you spent like three episodes confusing us. It's because you wanted to, in service of this broader goal. You know, like maybe, but I, I'm not hopeful that that's going to happen. I think I, I think you're right. Like this is the episode that I'm like, okay, I don't get it anymore. You know, like I, I'm, I'm willing to like accept a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown stuff, but I'm just like, this is like too much. This one's too much for me. So.
1: This episode is too much, but I won't say the season is too much. And I'm really hoping that, like, it just it, – it solidifies a bit more next week. And, it, uh, like, I understand that it's working for some people and they're really happy about it. Ra- Raymond Terry, who I consider, like, one of our sharpest listeners who always, like, come, like corrects me on things, says, like – in our chat he's like i got no issue with this and also like i don't think the aspect ratio is is the cradle okay like maybe not maybe who knows (laughs) let's all just like (laughs) strap in but i am sorry because like i think people come to me like looking for clarity on the show i'm one of them and and, like i feel like i have some clarity but not uh in full clarity for you this week
0: so i guess i I don't understand raymond's comment about like the aspect ratio doesn't mean the cradle because at the end it is in the different aspect ratio so like uh i, I, I mean that's kind of my point is that i i think clearly the ending is meant to denote that bernard is in the cradle right like that's feels like it's beyond dispute <laughs> yeah but you never know and so the question is just whether or not the opening scene indicates that it's also in the cradle because it's in that aspect ratio I, I that is the big question for me um because if the answer is yes that they're both in the cradle then that like that helps to orient me it's still pretty confusing. But it helps to orient me. But if the aspect ratio is just like – Means
1: nothing? Means nothing.
0: <laughs> then it's like – or means something that we haven't considered yet. Right? Uh, That's very possible. Yeah. Then, yeah. you know, it's just it's, – it's really confusing. It's really confusing. So and, – and as a result, it's hard to evaluate this episode because you don't even know what is actually happening right
1: right and that's something that people come once again that's something that people complained about in season 1 and i was defensive of it and this season i'm like i kind of feel you on it
0: yeah so, kind of yeah. feel that's exactly how i feel it's not like the show's terrible no it's just like uh kind of feel you that it's it's a little too confusing for its own good
1: yeah um, and ryan in the chat is like says like i think it would be a real, real real weird move to not keep all the letterbox scenes in the same reality and i just really agree if you're going to use yeah. it for the first time ever and it's for two different things. This, like, Dolores Arnold chat or Bern- Arnold, Bernard, 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 whoever. Yeah. Jeffrey Wright and Evan Rachel Wood are having a chat in, in one aspect ratio. And Jeffrey Wright inside the cradle is in that same aspect ratio. And nothing else in the show is in that aspect ratio. Like, why wouldn't those things be connected? Agreed. You know?
0: so. Agreed. It would be a very bizarre decision that the show may or may not make. You never know. <laughs> you never know. You yeah. never know. Okay. Um, well, uh, you know, we, we've we tried to hash it out as best as we can on this episode of Decoding Westworld. And uh, I, I have a feeling like, you know, here's what I'll say, Joanna. In defense of the show, in defense of the show, I felt like season one tied up a lot of the loose ends, right, of season one. Uh, like the season one finale answered a lot of the questions. And so my hope is that the end of season two, like, I, I don't think we're going to be left wondering what's up with the aspect ratio by the end of season two. Because otherwise, at that point, I am going to go like full rage on the show. You know what I'm saying? Like- oh, get ready. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I have faith that we're going to get answers to these questions. And, um, and I have hope, but not faith, that the answers will be satisfying. So, okay. Uh, any closing thoughts? If not, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Um, find more episodes of the show at decodingwestworld.com. Email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson's new podcast, Unspooled. They're watching the 100 all-time greatest movies and discussing them with film experts. Find that podcast uh, in apps like Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts right now. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week?
1: I can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at JoeRotha.
0: I'm sorry. i got to interrupt you and say Joanna's being far too modest because you can actually find her on the cover of Vanity Fair.
1: Well, not uh, me on the cover. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, your name on the cover. Sure, uh, sure. Joanna had the cover story on Vanity Fair. You did an interview with Amelia uh, Clark, right?
1: I did. I did do that. Yeah. S-
0: super cool. Um, it was so awesome to see that. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to that. Uh, uh, anyway, thank continue. you. Uh,
1: you can find my byline on the cover of Vanity Fair. You can find <laughs> me at vanityfair.com you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This.
0: Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky, that's Dave Chen, SKY, and YouTube.com slash Dave Chensky, that's Dave Chensky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.